And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. So Palm Sunday has a lot of very warm memories for me, my own growing up, singing that song that the kids sang, making crosses out of the palms, which by the way, if you're interested after the service, I'll teach you how to do. And also just the promise of spring. There's lots of like things about this season that are very nostalgic. But the nostalgia can actually stand in the way sometimes of actually encountering what the words and this account of the story of Jesus' entry into the city actually mean. Maybe for the first time in a long time, when I read this passage when I was preparing this week, It just had a resonance to it that seemed uh, uniquely powerful. There was both the power of what was happening, but also the pathos of what was happening. I don't know if that's been a crazy year behind us, or being in a new place, or a hundred other reasons, but for whatever reason, just the power of this account and the depth of what is happening struck me in a unique and really beautiful way that here Jesus is clearly the king. (laughs) There's no doubt about it. As we've been marching through Luke over and over from the very first uh, stories of Luke, Luke has been laying a very careful case for Jesus being the true king, the one for whom all of creation has been waited with bated breath. 
And now here at this moment of his entry into the city, that king is now full in prominence. And as he marches into the city, as he begins to take up his work, his final work, there's no doubt for those of us who are reading through Luke that this is the king. This is the king. This is the king of glory. And it's ready for him to come into his place and reign and to rule. But the thing about this entry here is that the way that Jesus reigns, there's no doubt he's the king, but the way he takes up his reign, the way he takes up his kingship, is very much at odds with my own expectations of power. And I would guess your own assumptions about power as well. This passage comes right on the heels of the parable we looked at last week, where Jesus tells by a negative illustration of what the kingdom of God is not. The kingdom of God is not ruled by a tyrant. The kingdom of God is not based on your merit. The kingdom of God is not a reign of terror. And here in this passage, we see the king, the true king. And we see the power of that true king. But we also see the heart of the true king. And the power and the heart combine in order for us to actually be able to finally worship the true king. First of all, the power of this true king. In verse 28 through 40, it's very clear that a victory parade is, sorry, a victory parade is in process. Jesus is approaching the city. It's take, Luke is taking up the story as he's outside before he enters into the gates, into the main throng of all the things that are going on for Passover. And so he's approaching the city. But even in his approach to the city, there's this beginning swelling of a parade, a victory parade. But this victory parade is very different than the typical victory parade of the first century world. The victory parade of the first century world was very much governed by the way Roman victory parades happened. A Roman victory parade would happen by the victor, the general, the person in charge of the conquest, returning back to the imperial city, riding a war horse, garbed in all of his armor, with all the standards going in front of him, proclaiming the power and the domination of Rome. Uh, the banners were red with a laurel wreath emblazoned in gold, and the letters S-P-Q-R in the middle of those laurels, which stood in Latin for the people, and the Senate of Rome. It was a display of power when the general, the victorious leader, came back to the city. He would have been surrounded by his troops, also decked out in their finest. It would also have included all the spoils of war that they had achieved from conquering a foreign power or their city or their temple. It would also include captives, people they had enslaved and taken as captives to sell into slavery back in the imperial city. And so this procession would be enormous. And all the elements and trappings would be trappings of power in order to proclaim to the watching world 
don't mess with Rome. Because if you mess with us, this is what will happen to you. We will take your treasure. We will put your people into captivity. You will be under our boot, and we will rule you with an iron fist. So this is a victory parade, but it has markers extremely different from a Roman victory parade. There's uh, this almost no vestiges of these external demonstrations of power. In fact, Jesus' own means of transportation is a borrowed animal. This, by the way, my favorite part of the story. I love the story of the donkey. I love the way that Jesus tells his disciples how to get the donkey colt. Tell them the Lord hath need of it. Can you imagine, you know, you coming up to me and saying, Sam, I hath need of your car. Give me your keys. <laughs> Probably wouldn't go very far. But Jesus is able to exert, even by the word of his power, authority over the details of human history down to the level of borrowing a donkey. And the disciples go and they say, the Lord hath need of it. And the owner says, okay, take it. And he takes the donkey, which Luke says here is the colt, the foal of one that has not been broken. I, for a summer, I'm not a horse expert, but for a summer I worked on a horse ranch in Colorado in college. And one of the first lessons you learn is don't sit on the back of an animal that has not been broken. It will buck you. It will throw you off. And yet even here, Luke is drawing attention to a level of authority that Jesus exerts over not just humans and history, but actually over nature and creation itself. That he sits on an unbroken colt of a donkey. And then in this victory parade that's almost at every point different than the Roman victory parade, we begin to see power, but power in an absolutely different form being exerted. That there's this response of people um, spreading their cloaks on the road as he goes down the way to Jerusalem. They're taking off the thing that they hold dear that protects them from the elements that they probably only have one of and are willingly casting it before the entry and proclaiming, we're your servants. <laughs> You're our king. You deserve the best that we can give you. And then the words of the crowds are not the words of the Roman imperial reign of we won, bow before our mightiness. These are words of acclamation of God's goodness, his victory. The long anticipated Messiah is finally entering into the city. And the response is so joyful that when Jesus is even challenged, when the Pharisees say to him, tell your disciples they're going overboard, he says to them, man, if they don't yell and shout, the rocks themselves will proclaim the goodness and rightness of this day because the king has come. The king has been long expected. And the king is doing exactly what he needs to do, which is to reign. 
and to come into his city and to sit upon his throne and to show his people his power. And yet, this entourage has no spoils of war. There are no captives. In fact, the opposite of captives are in the train here. There aren't captives, there aren't slaves, there are free people in this train following Jesus. Blind who now see, deaf who now hear, lame who now walk, sinners who are now forgiven. Children of the enemy who have been liberated by Jesus' words and touch and love in order to come in and to be free people for the first time. There's also no conquered uh, tribute. There's nothing that this king needs to show his power. There's no gold. There's no, uh, you know, displays of wealth. He doesn't even own his own donkey that he's riding on. But his display is centered in his person. He himself is all that is needed. And there are no banners. There's no proclamation of the rule of Rome. They're simply palm branches being stripped from the trees and waved by children as they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The words of scripture in the mouths of children are the appropriate response to this proclamation of power. There is power on display here in, without question. There is power, but it's a different sort of power devoid absolutely of dominance. It's a power stripped of every sense of worldly power that we're so accustomed to seeing as a sign of power that so many of us miss what this really is. That this is an actual display of absolute power. Imagine, because we just had one, a presidential inauguration parade, which is sort of our modern version of a Roman military parade, right? There are displays of power. There are things that we honor. There are displays and words and things that are said and done to show, like, this person is the winner, and they now get to reign in a certain way. But imagine an inauguration parade stripped of devoid of any symbols of power. Imagine an inauguration where there is no security force, no barricades, no drones in the sky, no snipers on the roof. Imagine a victory parade by the victor where there is no armored limousine, where the winner simply strolls from the Capitol to the White House. What would that be? Crazy today. Or an absolute display of absolute power. That this person is so victorious that there are now no enemies powerful enough to, to harm them, to stand in their way, to stop their progress, to lay down all arms, to lay down all tokens of power is actually a sign of absolute power. And that's exactly what is happening in this account 
of Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. It's a display of absolute power. It's un it's unchallengeable that Jesus here is showing that he is the true king who's come into his kingdom, unarmed, unprotected, with unassailable power. But this story is not just about that. If it were just about power, that would be one thing. But Luke draws our attention to another part of Jesus's character, not just to see a king who shows us his power. He is a king who shows us his heart. In verse 41 through 44, Jesus reveals the compassionate heart of the true king. Here in this section, he is moved to weep. There's only a few times in Scripture where it talks about Jesus weeping. But each of those times, he's not weeping as a display of his humanity, like, oh yeah, need to check off that weeping thing because that's what humans do. Jesus is moved to weep because he is fully God and fully human. But here in this passage, we see God in his full display of power weeping for what will transpire in this city when they reject the protection of the true king's power. Do you notice the words are all outwardly oriented? Jesus is not weeping for himself. In this passage, he is not weeping for the cost that he is about to pay for the redemption of his people. He's not weeping for that. It's all outward. He's weeping for the results, the, the devastating results that are going to happen by people choosing to remain and to reject the power of the true king. It's the rejection of his power um, that will cause this. He says these words that are deeply emotional, if you had only known what makes for peace. <laughs> There's a sense of grieving, lament. There's this prophecy that will transpire and come to pass in less than 40 years from its prediction at this moment. Everything Jesus predicts that is going to happen actually does happen in human history. In 70 AD, the, um, the Roman power comes against Jerusalem because they've rebelled and they absolutely obliterate the city of Jerusalem. They uh, circle it, like he says. They throw up ramparts of earth in order to breach the walls. And once they're within the city, they tear it down stone by stone. They enter the temple. They empty its treasury. They burn it to the ground. The, 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 in, who's in charge of this is a man who will become later the emperor of Rome. And there's still a frieze in Rome today depicting his victory parade in Rome over the defeat of Jerusalem, carrying the golden menorah through the streets, pulling the captives in train behind him, him decked out in his imperial garb. And that prediction that Jesus foretells that he sees coming 
is because of the rejection of this day against his rightful rule over all things. Now, consequences clearly are part of the story of Jesus. Jesus is not just a story about everything's going to be okay and there aren't any consequences. Here in this story, we very see that there are real effects of rejecting the real king's protection. But Jesus reveals here that God is not a dispassionate dispenser of justice. That God weeps. He cares for the effects of his own story when it's being rejected. That he is moved to tears by our own hard-heartedness. Tyrants don't care about how their policies hurt you. Tyrants cannot care less about how you feel about them. Jesus' tears here reveal the heart of a father, the attitude of a shepherd, the stance of absolute tenderness, the king who is powerful, is as Dave prayed, also the suffering servant. He is the one who cares, who is moved, even in the execution of his justice, not by justice itself, but by mercy. That God's motivation, his care, is always out of his love for his people and his willingness to pursue them at any cost in order to bring them back home to himself. So what does this display of both God's power in Jesus and his mercy in Jesus mean for us right now, today? How do we take these two things, Jesus as king in power and Jesus as king in mercy, and put them into a practical application for us as people today? Well, there's really just a choice here. The same choice that the people are watching Jesus as he enters into the city is the same choice you and I have today. Which side do we take? Do we take the revelation of Jesus' view of God's character, a character full of both power and mercy? Or do we take a worldly view of God as only a God who is a tyrant? Now what's curious is that most of us, our fallback position is God is a tyrant of one kind or another. And that view of God as a tyrant fuels both our disbelief as well as it fuels our, our um, defective beliefs about God. First of all, it fuels our, our disbelief. I've talked to dozens and dozens of people as a, a minister. One of the great things about being a minister is also one of the worst things about being a minister. One of the great things about being a minister is you tell people you're, you're a minister, and suddenly people, they unburden their souls. You know, it's, it's great for that. It's not so great as an opening line at a cocktail party. But when people sort of, you say I'm a minister, they tell me things. One of the things they tell me is, I hate God. I'm like, great, tell me more about that. Describe this God that you dislike. And they start telling me these stories about their upbringing, the church they might have grown up in, 
way that they felt like this God was against them. And by the end of the story, they, they kind of are asking, well, what do you think about that? What's your response? And oftentimes I'll say something like, what you just told me about that kind of God, I wouldn't believe in that kind of God either. You're right to disbelieve in that kind of God because that kind of God is a tyrant. That isn't the God I believe in. Would you be willing to read a couple of chapters of this book called Luke with me and talk about how Jesus shows us a very different kind of God? Occasionally, not as often as I would like, people take me up on that offer. And when we start reading what Luke, what the other gospel writers tell about Jesus, people begin to see, wait a minute, that God I had was, was a tyrant, but this God is different. He's a God of power, clearly, but he's a God of incredible tenderness. Maybe, just maybe, I could trust a kind of God like this because he's powerful enough to take care of me, but he's tender enough for me to entrust my heart to. Yes. Because that's who God is. But that same God is a tyrant fuels our disordered and our wrong application of faith as well. Some of us um, are anxious and fearful. We have a faith that is crippled because we want to and we obey and we're faithfully careful to do the things that God tells us to do or that the church tells us to do or that we read in the Bible, but we do so out of fear. We see God's power. We know that he is a force to be reckoned with. But what we don't know is that he's tender. And so our discipleship is girded by fear. And the anxieties begin to raise to the surface. And our obedience is truncated and less than full-hearted because we do not see the other side of God, of his tenderness, that he weeps, that he cares, that he has come for us, and that he truly, truly is motivated by mercy. Others of us are proud, and we have a judgmental faith. Because we assume God's mercy. Of course, God's merciful. And of course, God would be merciful to me. I'm a person worthy of his mercy. And we fail to factor into our equation his power. You see it here in this passage. The Pharisees' response to Jesus' uh, disciples getting too excited, right? Tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus says, man... If they do not cry out, the rocks themselves would cry out. That comment is motivated by a stance of assuming God's mercy and downplaying Jesus's, the true king's power. How do we have belief? The way we have belief is by unifying those two things. Jesus reveals God's true character as a God of power, and equally as a God of mercy. 
those things are un, unweldable from each other. They are both equally and absolutely as true as the other. That as we begin to see his mercy and his power, we are moved into a state of being able to cry out as the crowds did that day, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because we're able to see this is the king that I need. I need his power. I need his rule. I cannot rule myself. My rule has failed. I need this king. But I need a king who weeps for me. Who sympathizes and comes alongside and knows my struggles. When those two things are held together and un quenchable force is unleashed called belief and that belief exerts itself through acknowledgement that is a cry of joy we won victory is ours our king has come into his city he is taking up his rule and the way he rules is by serving and stooping to draw even me into his kingdom. He loves even me. Hosanna to the King of Kings. Let's pray. Jesus, victor, ruler, and weeper over our sins and over our hard-heartedness, reign over us rule in us, change and transform us to be more and more people who reflect your character of both power and mercy. Our world is so hungry, so desperate for those two things that they're looking in all kinds of false ways. Help us to show clearly you as the king of power and of grace. Amen.